All right, so go ahead and stand up with me. Uh, we're going to be in Daniel 7, 9 through 14. <clears throat> uh, again, we just stand to honor God with our bodies, recognizing that this is his word, not ours. Daniel 7, 9 through 14, uh, God writes through Daniel, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, you guys can be seated. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, fill us with your spirit. Um, these are your words, and um, no matter what kind of among these words uh, means absolutely nothing unless your spirit moves among us, allows us to catch another glimpse of the Son of Man, another glimpse of the Ancient of Days in his face, another glimpse to transform us to be more and more like Jesus this day. And so we ask that you would powerfully move and that you would apply your word to our hearts, make us hearers and doers. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so Louis XIV, uh, some would call him the greatest king in uh, France, or at least French history. Maybe you could argue Napoleon, but he said he was an emperor, so we're not going to call him a king. Um, one of the greatest kings or most powerful kings in French history, he was called an absolute monarchist because it just meant the king had absolute authority over everything. There was no checks and balances whatsoever. Uh, another way of saying this was he was king by divine right. He answered only to God according to his own um, self. Now, he also had a huge palace called uh, Versailles. And if you go Google Versailles, you can just see it is grand. It has courts and outdoor areas that are just amazing. And this palace really served as a symbol of his power. But it also was used to demonstrate his power because he used the court life at Versailles to domesticate the nobles and the aristocrats of France, in, a, in essence, taking all power away from them and making them come to him in order for them to get anything that they wanted to do. So controlled were the nobles that they fought over different slots in which they would go before uh, King Louis. And the most uh, sought-after sought, uh, slot to sign up for was bedtime, where his nobles would literally go in and tuck Louis in at night. 
I don't know if they read them a bedtime story as well. But then they would have a passing moment where they could whisper something, uh, hey, I want the speed limit changed to 15 miles per hour or whatever. And it would be the last thing and maybe even the first thing that uh, he would think of. So powerful was King Louis that he was famous for saying, I am the state. It's pretty powerful. And he wanted people to call him Louis the Great. Never a good sign when you want to be called great, I guess. Uh, Now, he had a plan for his death. He had uh, set it up that this famous bishop, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but Messilin, would direct a service at Notre Dame Cathedral uh, for his death, and that at the front there would be this candle, and it would be the only candle in the entire room. All the light would be snuffed out and covered up, and there would just be a candle, and everyone would sit there in silence and look at the light that represents Louis's power and life. He is the only light in the darkness. And this bishop did this down to a T. They all sat in the dark, and there's just this one candle representing Louis, who ironically is dead. Um, But after a few minutes, the bishop walked up, he snuffed out the candle, and he said, only God is great. That's what Daniel 7 is all about. If you could just take four words... um, and kind of tell what is all of the book of Daniel, including Daniel chapter 7, all about. It's probably only God is great. Only God is great. And so let's run through this list of kings, in their own eyes at least. The serpent in the garden who tried to make himself king over the world through the sin of mankind. Only God is great. Pharaoh of Egypt. Only God is great. Saul. David, Solomon, kings of Judah, only God is great. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, only God is great. Darius, his son or grandson, only God is great. Uh, Cyrus of Persia, only God is great. Alexander the Great, only God is great. Augustus Caesar, only God is great. Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, only God is great. The Antichrist, the little horn from Daniel chapter 7, only God is great. That's what our text is about. And so Daniel 7, 1 through 8, outlines uh, the visions that Daniel had of these four creatures, which represent Babylon, uh, Persia slash Medes, Greece, and Rome, and beyond. Um, That fourth creature was uh, 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 described as basically all the other ones were animals, and this one was so terrifying that he couldn't even describe it, um, right, the fourth creature. And out of that fourth creature, uh, Daniel writes that there will come out of him another horn, a little one, so the little horn. And here we have the quote-unquote antichrist, uh, the king who boasts great things and puts himself in the place of God. Um, And so... The mention of the four beasts, well, let me point this out. Um, Commentator uh, Golden Gay looks at this passage, 1 through 14, and he says, uh, maybe an overused word, uh, but that this is a chiasm, right? It's the mountaintop experience again. And so let me show you. Verses 1 through 3 mention the four beasts, and that is compared and contrasted to 13 through 14, which mentions the Son of Man. You're supposed to look at the reign of the Son of Man, 
and then look at the reign of the beasts and compare and contrast them, right? The second part, um, 4 through 8, is the little horn. And then look at verses 11 through 12. It's the judgment of the little horn. So now we have this little horn and all the great things he's boasting. And then over here in verses 11 through 12, he's judged. And then it brings us right to the heart of the passage, which is the ancient of days in verses 9 through 10, who is the one who will judge all the earth, right? And so at the center, we have this king sitting on his throne who quite literally is God, and he is the only one who is great. Um, And so here's what we're going to do with our text today. We're going to look at it in three chunks, two verses at a time. Uh, Verses 9 through 10, we're going to look at the Ancient of Days. Verses 11 through 12, we're going to look at the Antichrist, the little horn, and the other beasts, and the judgment that's put upon them. And then kind of finally, we're going to end with uh, the Son of Man in verses 13 through 14. So our first part, verses 9 through 10, you can put it up. God, the judge of the earth, will do what is just and right. So God writes through Daniel in verses 9 through 10, As I looked, thrones were placed in the hairs of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened, uh, end quote. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis uh, points out this hard transition, and I think uh, Fudd mentioned this before Easter when he went through chapter 7. There's a hard transition between verse 8 and 9. We're talking about these terrifying four beasts, these earthly kingdoms, this Antichrist, and it's quite terrifying. They seem to have rule and reign over God's creation. And then all of a sudden, verse 9, you just are immediately moved away from the beasts, and you see the Ancient of Days doing what? Taking a seat on a throne. So in the midst of all this terrifying chaos, God is just sitting on his throne, really being the one who rules and reigns. And so you expect everyone to be running around terrified at this point, like they're in a Godzilla vs. Kong movie. Uh, But instead, you get a picture of the Ancient of Days ruling very peacefully and very calmly in heaven. Thrones were placed. we'll, We'll talk about that later. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. All is calm in the vision of God and his strength. All is peaceful when one catches the sovereign power of God over all of creation. What is God doing while all this mayhem is going on? He's ruling and he's reigning and he's seated calmly on his throne. So let's look at the descriptors of the Ancient of Days. We know he's seated, he's ruling, so he's a king. We, can, we could describe him as this, but let's look at what the text says. It calls him the Ancient of Days. This is used nowhere outside of the book of Daniel, of anyone, much less God. So this is the only place, Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel is the only place where the Ancient of Days uh, comes up. And it quite literally means uh, the oldest of days, the oldest of the old, right? And um, I want to make sure that we don't, fall into a trap. 21st century American culture uh, has different views of people who are older. Uh, We tend to think frail or senile or, hey, kid, get off my lawn kind of thing, right? Um, 
But in the ancient world, age is associated with wisdom and grandeur, and as uh, the commentator Ralph Davis puts it, dignity. Um, the older you were, the more you usually possessed these traits. So when you see an older man or an older woman, you shouldn't think, oh, get off my lawn, kid, she's probably mad at me. But you should say, behold, one who has carried the burdens of life far longer than I have, what wisdom they must have. Let me sit at their feet and learn. So unfortunately, uh, my millennial generation, uh, we think that operating technology, we associate operating technology with intelligence um, and and wisdom, and again, that's not necessarily uh, true. So this next phrase, um, his clothing was white as snow. This seems to be referring to God's righteousness and his purity. So if the Ancient of Days title is referring to his wisdom, he's the oldest of the old, which means he has the most wisdom, the most grandeur, and the most dignity that can possibly be possessed. His clothes now are telling us that he is righteous and he is pure. He is untainted by any wrong or evil or sinfulness. Um, So let me show you uh, this phrase, white as snow. Uh, Here's a a parallel. uh, Well, I'll just show you the, I guess the imagery is a parallel imagery. Isaiah 1.18 refers to one who has his sins washed away as being white as snow. And so again, it's this idea that God is untouched by sin He's untainted by evil. He is absolutely pure and righteous. Uh, many times in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, the saints are describing, uh, described as having clothes or robes that are white. Um, the angels in Matthew, the resurrection story, are described with shining white clothes. Jesus is described this way in his transfiguration. Um, and so we see this imagery all throughout the Bible And this just tells us God is righteous. He's just. He will do what is right and what is good. So let's look at the next phrase in the text. The hair of his head like pure wool. All right, so um, this seems to be bringing the first two themes that we are already talking about, wisdom and righteousness, together. So his hair shows both his age because it's become white. It's become grayish white or whatever. But it's also showing... And so, again, it's just bringing those two themes together. And so the Ancient of Days is all wise. He's all righteous. And then another thing that we can perhaps get, this is uh, the, the idea of being the oldest of days, right, is also alluding to his eternity, that he's always been. He's eternal, he's righteous, and he's wise. So the text then moves from a description of the Ancient of Days, who's seated, to a description of his courtroom, his thrones or the thrones around him, his servants, and then these judgment books that are going to be opened up. Listen to how his throne is described. It's described as quite literally being fiery flames with wheels that are burning with fire. And out of the midst of the presence of God is a stream of fire that comes out and issues from before him. So we have kind of Three, and then a little bit later on, fire is mentioned again. So you have four times in this text where this fire imagery uh, comes up. And fire here best represents God's judgment against sin. Um, And we'll talk about that a little bit later. The word that's being described here is is out of this God who's 
seated on the throne. Out from before his presence is this river of fire, which is judgment that's just coming straight from his presence. Not away from his presence, but out from his presence, which is kind of a key thing. And so we have this river of fire coming out. And then finally, we have this description of thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands standing and waiting before the ancient of days. And this is quite literally the hosts of the Lord of hosts, his armies, his angels, his servants, those who are ministering before him on his throne room and waiting upon his judgment. And then finally, it says the court sits in judgment and the books were opened and making uh, plain that again, the fiery imagery here is judgment. He's opening the books of judgment. So we'll touch on this a little bit later as well. Uh, So the first thing I want to answer is, what exactly is this judgment going to do? Like, who is the court? What's happening here? Flash down to verses 21 through 22, same chapter, Daniel 7. It says, As I looked... The horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So this seems to be making a kind of parallel statement to verses 9 through 14. The horn is making war on God's people. The Ancient of Days comes down in judgment and then uh, the kingdom of God is given to the saints of the Most High. But in our passage, it's kind of the same thing. The Ancient of Day comes down. He judges the little horn, but who does he give the kingdom to? It's not the saints of the Most High. It's the Son of Man. And so there's this parallel already. We're kind of seeing this idea of union with Christ, right? Because of what Christ has done before us, because of being in Christ, we share in the very same kingdom that's described in this Son of Man uh, passage that we're talking about, which is pretty amazing. Uh, It continues the same theme in verses 26 through 27. Um, But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Talking about the little horn. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve him and obey him. Um, So again, just an amazing concept here. The Ancient of Days shall sit, shall judge, and then he's going to give the everlasting kingdom to the Son of Man and also to the saints. So let's look at something else. Verses 9 through 10 still. Uh, This is always a good good question to ask. Um, And um, I'm reminded of this a lot when people remind me of this a lot. How does Jesus read the Bible is really important. Um, If Jesus reads Daniel 7 in a certain light, it's super important for us as Christians who follow Jesus to understand how he reads it. And we can extend that principle out to even the followers of Jesus, the 12, right? So how does the New Testament look at Daniel uh, chapter 7? And here we find, um, this is pointed out by G.K. Beale, uh, Revelations chapter 4 through 5, which is this... uh, Beautiful two-chapter description of Jesus ascending to heaven, going before God on his throne, and receiving a book or a revelation, and also receiving a kingdom made up of all peoples, uh, nations, and languages. So very much a a parallel thing here. And G.K. Beale points out that 
uh, Daniel chapter 7 is actually at the root. Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, 9 through 28 is actually what John in Revelation models Revelation 4 through 5 completely on. It's just following the step-by-step model. I'll point out a few things. Um, Revelation 4.1 starts off very much like Daniel 7.9. Here's Revelation 4.1. After this, I looked. And so there's kind of two apocalyptic uh, catchphrases that you'll see a lot of times when it comes to like seeing visions uh, of, of God's grandeur, of God reigning in heaven. They'll use just the very simple, as I looked, or I looked and saw, or they'll use something like, I saw in night visions. Those kind of two things here. And so Revelation starts off very much like Daniel 7, 9. After this, I looked. Both uh, Daniel 7 and Revelation describe a throne in heaven, and both describe uh, God sitting on that throne. Revelation 4, 2 says, with one seated on the throne. Both describe fire as being before the throne. Revelation 4, 5 says, before the throne were burning seven torches. Both describe heavenly servants surrounding the throne. I'll quote just one example. Revelation 5.11, I heard around the throne and, and living creatures and elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Uh, this is especially important because myriads just means 10,000. So it's 10,000 of 10,000s and thousands of thousands, which is a uh, it's a reversal, but it's pretty much a direct quote from Daniel chapter 7, 10, uh, wording of thousands of thousands and tens of thousands being before uh, this God who sits on the throne. Um, both describe books being opened and even kind of uh, dipping into Daniel seven thirteen, the Son of Man, both have a messianic figure approaching God's throne to receive authority and a kingdom. Um, so Revelation 5, 5 through 7 describes describes this, this buildup of who can open this book, right? And this, this declaration that goes throughout heaven, who can open the scroll? And no, one, no one's there to answer. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets up and he walks up to God and boldly approaches and takes uh, the book and he's worthy of it. And it says this, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven Seals And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So to return to our principle of how does the New Testament read Daniel chapter 7, John sees Daniel 7 as being fulfilled in Jesus' ascension to God's throne and um, receiving and taking a seat at the right hand of power and receiving God's judgment for all the earth and God's kingdom um, as well. And so that's how the New Testament reads this passage, which is why we should read it that way as well. So from all this, uh, we can say this. The Ancient of Days will judge all that goes on with great wisdom and righteousness uh, and fundamental to his plan of and hand is the defeat of the fourth beast and this little horn, the Antichrist, and handing over the kingdom of God to Jesus, the Son of Man. And so we could ask, just maybe practically, does knowing these things and seeing these things and reading these things in God's word, does this fill us with calm 
and peace in the midst of uh, what could be described as a crazy 2020 and 2021 uh, so far? Uh, Do we find ourselves in the midst of maybe we're going through a time of ease or maybe we're going through a time of um, suffering? Do we find ourselves still with a kind of peace, realizing that the Ancient of Days, even in the midst of those things, is seated on the throne, ruling and reigning with absolute wisdom, absolute righteousness, and we're going to see with absolute love as well. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has a really good, uh, he captures kind of this, this yearning for um, uh, how the vision of God should fill you with peace in the midst of suffering. He captures this well with a story that he told of a, uh, an older missionary back when they used boats. Um, re- he was returning from the mission field. He had just spent years upon years, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, and he's returning and he finds himself on a boat uh, that also has a celebrity on it, right? And so, pretty important boat. He gets back to the harbor, to his home, and um, there's tons of people there. And they're all there to get this guy's autograph and to kind of see this celebrity, right? And not a single soul is there for, to welcome back this missionary from his long journey. And so he's kind of tinged with sadness and... Um, Then he hears a whisper, and the whisper said this, Do not be discouraged. You have not yet reached your home. And so when we suffer uh, in this life, um, when we're discouraged, when uh, we're striving to kill sin uh, in our lives and um, remain decent in indecent times, as they might say in the dark night, Um, When we do these things, we need to hear God's whisper to us, uh, don't be discouraged, this is not your home. And maybe we could add to that, you've not yet reached home yet, I the ancient of days await to greet you and to give to you rule and reign in the eternal kingdom of my son Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. So let's look at this. Second part, the second uh, couplet of verses, verses 11 through 12. And this one is about, this one's more focused on judgment. We've already seen that God is judging, but now it's going to quite literally talk about his judgment. Uh, And I just wrote, Satan and his children will be judged by the ancient of days. So God continues to write through Daniel in verses 11 through 12. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed. As to the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So verses 11 through 12 naturally continue 9 through 10. The chaos in verse 8 of all the four creatures, the beast and the little horn, is met with the calm of verse 9 the seating of the Ancient of Days. But verse 11 through 12 brings us back into that chaos of the little horn. All of a sudden, here he is talking, boasting great things. He's talking about great things. And Daniel's, it's almost like his concentration on the Ancient of Days is broken for a moment to just look at this boasting of great things uh, from the, the, the horn. Um, and, and we could maybe get something out of this. Uh, don't spend too much time listening to the boastings of Satan, but spend a lot of time looking at the judgment of Satan. 
Um, and that's what is going to happen here. As soon as he's boasting these great things, we all of a sudden see him judged, the fourth beast destroyed, and thrown, his body thrown into fire to be burned. Um, so don't spend much time contemplating the boastings of the Antichrist, but rather contemplated with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As great as the words coming from the horn's mouth, so greater was the judgment of God upon the horn. Um, and so what does this entail? Like, Because we're talking about beasts, we're talking about horns, like who, who is this judgment against, right? Who's included? Is it just Satan? Is it just a beast? And what is this beast? Um, does the New Testament speak to this? Does the New Testament read this passage in a certain light? Kind of going back to our previous theme. Revelation 29 through 15 um, says this. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sold for where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, end quote. Um, G.K. Beale Again, very helpful um, here in his, uh, he has a commentary book called The Commentary of the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. I've said it several times already in sermons, but you should, if you want to know kind of how the New Testament reads the Old Testament, that's the book. It's one of the best references because you just scroll through whatever the New Testament book is and you can kind of look and it'll highlight the verses that allude to or directly quote something in the Old Testament and then they kind of analyze the context of the Old Testament and what the New Testament writer is doing with it. So, really good book. So, G.K. Beale points out a couple of Old Testament imagery going through. Uh, the part of this passage that I didn't read is this battle between uh, characters called Gog and Magog and uh, Satan's battle with the nations. And G.K. Beale points out this is uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. The phrase that we do start with, fire came down from heaven... It's straight from 2 Kings 1, 10-14, which um, is Elijah calling down fire upon the armies of the ungodly king Ahaziah uh, during this time. Uh, the lake of fire and sulfur in verse 10 continues these themes and even begins to allude to Daniel 7's river of fire that comes out from God's presence. And, uh, and, it, and, and also Daniel 7:11, its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 then turns wholesale to Daniel chapter 7 again and relies primarily on it, secondarily on Ezekiel 1, which we're not going to talk about. In verse 11, the throne and him who was seated onto it refers back to the Ancient of Days passage in 9 through 10. The opening of the books 
is a direct quote of Daniel 7.10. The phrase, a place was not found for them, is taken from Daniel 2.35. Reference to the book of life seems to be alluding to uh, Daniel chapter 12, 1 through 2, which tells us everyone who is found written in the book ultimately will be rescued, and rescued to what? To everlasting life. So Daniel 7's focus is on God's judgment in the negative sense against the ungodly. Daniel 12's focus is God's judgment against the saints, and it's good. It's primarily positive. Uh, it's eternal life. And so we're, we're primarily concerned with God's judgment against the ungodly. And so Revelation uh, answers that question for us of what is Daniel 7 talking about? He's talking about the end times judgment against all who worship Satan and the beast. It's the judgment against the ungodly. Um, so I want to I take a, a brief excursion or rabbit trail um, not too much of a rabbit trail. Here's my, my thinking. Uh, Revelation uh, 20 is directly talking about hell and God's judgment against the ungodly. And it's reading that from Daniel chapter 7. So and to our text. Take a, a, the, the doctrine of God's judgment, the doctrine of hell. And I just wanted to take a, a brief excursion because there's a lot of different teachings on hell going around um, in our particular culture at this time. Uh, I'll, I'll outline a few of them, but we're not going to make too much, um, too much of each, but we'll look at kind of what we learn from Revelation uh, in regards to Daniel 7 here. So there's this idea of universalism, which basically is there's no hell. Everyone will go uh, to the quote-unquote heaven uh, regardless of whether or not they believe in Jesus or not. There's no support for this in Scripture, obviously. There's a kind of Christian universalism. Um, the, this is made famous by Rob Bell in a book called Love Wins, where basically after death, you will be presented with the chance to repent over and over and over again, and eventually throughout eternity, every single person will repent and then believe in Jesus. So even though you might start against Jesus, eventually love will win, and you will... Uh, follow Jesus. So this is a kind of Christian universalism, but this doesn't seem to work because we have descriptions all throughout the Bible of people being judged and their judgment being described as eternal. And then there's a, a kind of a, a lesser, uh, a different, it's not universalist. Uh, there are Christians who hold to this view, and this is called uh, annihilationism. Um, and this is quite literally the idea that after death, if you're not in Christ, you just cease to exist. God annihilates you. And the biblical reasoning behind that is, well, it's an eternal punishment because you eternally will cease to exist. And they also take imagery and metaphors that are used often associated with hell, like burning with fire. And they say, well, when you burn something with fire, eventually it's burned up and it's gone, right? And it ceases to exist. And so it's based on kind of the imagery of uh, what they would call uh, scriptural um, descriptors of hell. But I want to talk about something else. Um, this is the traditional teaching of hell, that it is a forever eternal conscious punishment from God because of sin, because of rebellion, uh, because you at heart hate God. And so I want to, I want to show you something. 
Um, again, we're going kind of into Revelation 14 and 19. We're going to be in Revelation's reading of Daniel 7. Revelation 14, 10 through 11 uh, tells us that all who worship Satan are cast into the very same lake of fire that Satan himself is described to be casting into and the fourth beast is cast into. Um, Revelation, <clears throat> Revelation 19.10 uses this word uh, torment. Uh, I'll read it this way. They, the beast and the false prophet, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And it's in the lake of fire. And so <clears throat> this word torment, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever without exception in the book of Revelation, refers to conscious suffering on the part of people. So the word torment, always in the book of Revelation, refers to conscious suffering on the part of people. Uh, I've got a ton of lists. Uh, 9-5, 11-10, 12-2, 18-7, verse 10, and verse 15, and chapter 20-10, every single time in the book of Revelation. Furthermore, um, G.K. Beale's pointing this out, 5, chapter 6, Luke, chapter 8, chapter 16, and also in Second Peter chapter 2. And then G.K. Beale points out something even further. The same word group in the Old Testament Greek version, the, the Septuagint, when they use this same word group, it's used over a hundred times. And every single time, without exception, it refers to suffering, conscious suffering on the part of people. And so this word torment, I, I, I don't see how you can interpret it any other way. Um, furthermore, forever and ever... Uh, continues this, or, or day and night and forever and ever, show us this ceaseless nature of the suffering. The phrase forever and ever shows up in Revelation 12 other times, always referring to eternity. Always referring to eternity. And so it would seem that Revelation's reading of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation's teaching of the judgment of God is that it is uh, hell is a suffering, a conscious suffering that never ceases. Uh, that it's not annihilationism, it's not love wins in Christian universalism, or just uh, regular universalism. And so I, I just want to point out kind of three things that this should do for us. First, it should cause us to fear the Ancient of Days, the one who judges. Uh, our fear should be in him and not in anything else. He has the power to judge both the body and the soul. Uh, he is the one who can throw the body and the soul into fire. Um, so we should fear God and we should trust Christ. All right. Second thing is, is when we look at the cross, we should look at it so much more powerfully than any of those other versions of hell can look at it. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, he drank down hell. And if hell is just a little bit watered down, then the cross is just a little bit watered down. But here we have our Savior, the Son of Man, coming and drinking down hell on our behalf. And then the third, how can this not fill us, fill us with compassion for the lost? Right? The lost are in a state in which they are in rebellion against God and um, they are under His judgment. And the only way that they can... Uh, repent of that is if they hear the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, which is what Daniel 7 now turns to, quite literally. So let's look at verses 13 through 14. Behold the Son of Man. 13 through 14 says this, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so we're going to look at the Son of Man in kind of three different angles and then we're going to conclude with the good news of Jesus Christ according to Daniel. Um, So we're going to look at the chronology or the time frame of the Son of Man. We're going to look at his humanity, and we're going to look at his divinity, all found in this passage. All right, so chronology. Uh, This is 3A. Is it talking about the ascension or the second coming? Is this vision in heaven, or is it on earth? Uh, One of the questions that really haunted me Right? Is this heaven or is this earth? Is this the second coming or the first or the ascension of Jesus Christ? Um, so let me let me just show you why it's not as obvious. So there's good evidence for both. On the side of this vision taking place on earth, and thus referring to Jesus' second coming, we have things like this. Daniel seven never references the vision taking place in heaven, and verses one through eight seem to primarily be focusing on the beasts on earth and what they're doing on earth. And then all of a sudden, Daniel sees the throne. And so, yes, you could say he's zooming up to heaven, but it could quite literally be talking about the ancient of days coming to earth in judgment. A couple of other things. The Son of Man's uh, coming is described as, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. This seems to be more naturally read as the Son of Man coming from the heavens to the earth. Uh, to the Ancient of Days, who's in the debate, because he, in verse 9. Furthermore, Jesus himself seems to settle directly. Matthew 26, 64, he's responding to the high priest's statement, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64 says, uh, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus has quoted two things here. He's quoted Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But then he also clearly interprets Daniel 7.13 as his second coming. When he tells the priest, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Boom. Done deal. Jesus just answered our question. Uh, But there seems to be some other stuff. So I reached out. Uh, to the elders on this one and uh, got some good, some really good advice. Um, Pastor Joe highlighted the evidence uh, for seeing it as taking place in heaven, a reference to his ascension. Here's uh, some of Joe's outlining. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is uh, dripping in illusionary language to Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14, that he's received all authority in heaven. Revelation 4 through 5, which we already detailed, is heavily structured by Daniel chapter 7, and it's talking about Jesus going up in heaven and receiving a kingdom um, from God on the throne. Uh, and then also kind of the same thing, uh, Fudd pointed this out. Matthew twenty six sixty four says, From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on heaven. And Fudd highlighted, from now on seems to indicate that the fulfillment of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 includes not only his ascension, but from now on, all the way up to his second coming. All right, and so 
the answer is, which one is it? Heaven or earth? Uh, ascension? Second coming? And we give the answer, both. It is all of the above. It is C, all of the above. Um, and there's a, there's a good principle here. Uh, Joe pointed this out as well. We called it telescoping. And I am now officially patenting it and copywriting it. So it, is, it belongs to me and no one else. Um, so Joe wrote this. Telescoping is where the Old Testament prophet is given a vision of the future that appears to them to all happen at once despite it playing out over significant periods of time. And so why telescoping? When you look through a telescope and you see a cluster of stars, they all appear like they're really close to each other, but in reality they might be millions of light years away from each other. And so this uh, Daniel is looking forward and he's seeing this vision and he's seeing a lot of spread out events, but he's seeing it like a cluster of stars. And so he speaks of it as if it's just one and done event. That's kind of what's going on here. So let me give you uh, an example of what Daniel would really kind of be seeing and how it is spread out through time. Jesus' birth. Between Jesus' birth and his ministry, you've got 30 years. Jesus' ministry. Between his ministry and his death and resurrection, you have three-ish years. Between uh, his death and resurrection, uh, or his death and his resurrection, you have three days. Between his resurrection and his ascension, you have 40 days. Between his ascension and his second coming, you have 2,000 and counting years, right? But all of that is seen as one singular event, the day of the Lord, the coming of the Son of Man. All right, so a human city, more directly in the passage, is this Son of Man, is he a human? Is he a man? Uh, well, let's look at some evidence. First, what does Son of Man mean? It quite literally means man. It's just a synonymous term for a human being. When you call someone a son of man, you're basically saying you are a human being. Um, we see this all throughout the Bible. Um, Ezekiel 1 would be one example where Ezekiel is called a son of man. You see it in the, uh, I discovered this this morning, I don't know why I went this route, but you see it in the uh, Tarzan soundtrack uh, for the Disney movie of Tarzan in which there is a uh, track called Son of Man. And it's talking about Tarzan being a man, not a gorilla. Um, so you see it all throughout uh, culture as well. Um, that was random. Now, our second emphasis on Jesus' humanity uh, ties to the first one. And it's this phrase, I saw in night visions. And this connects our verse, verse 13, back to verses 2 and 3 and verse 7. So verses 2 and 3 say this, I saw in my vision by night four great beasts that came up out of the sea. And then look at verse 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. And now he is wanting you to see these beasts, which, by the way, represent human beings, human kings, human nations, human governments. These are humans, but they're beasts. They're not, you don't see any humanity in them because they have been corrupted and they've been twisted into quite literally beasts. And then all of a sudden, in the same kind of night vision, you have a son of man. And what is he seen as? He's seen as a man. He's not seen as a beast. His nature is not twisted. And so what we actually have here is Daniel's teaching us that this son of man is actually what real humanity looks like. You want to see a picture of what real humanity is, what a, a real man is supposed to look like. You look at Jesus and you see real 
humanity. The effects of Satan, sin, and death upon the nature of mankind has a monstrous, twisting kind of effect where we are more akin to monsters and beasts than men when we go into sin and in rebellion against God. And so that's what Daniel's doing here. He's saying this son of man is the real man. Stare into the humanity of Jesus Christ and see what real humanity uh, is meant to look like and quite literally what we as the church in Christ are supposed to look like. Let's look at his divinity. Not only is Jesus fully man, he's fully God. Uh, We find divinity uh, in this text and we also find it in the New Testament reading of the text, which is a big theme. The first is the origin of the Son of Man's coming. It's with the clouds of heaven. Well, heaven, that's where God resides. But look at the word cloud. Cloud is also uh, indicating the divinity of Jesus. Very early on, God identifies his presence uh, with people via a pillar of cloud. He leads them through the wilderness in Exodus. Um, he, when he dwells on Mount Sinai or when he dwells on the tabernacle or when he dwells on Solomon's temple, he dwells in a cloud uh, with it. Uh, look, we'll, we'll do this as well. Uh, Isaiah 19.1, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Uh, Jeremiah 4 depicts God coming in judgment upon the clouds. And so all throughout Scripture, cloud represents the presence of God, and then even further in the prophets, clouds. And so this God's judgment, his coming judgment, is represented as being upon the clouds. And so this Son of Man is carrying on what God himself would do. He is riding on the clouds that God himself would ride on, and he's coming in judgment. Another uh, piece of evidence for this is this word, um, serve. Uh, from verse 14, talking about all the peoples, nations, and languages. Um, This was Dale Ralph Davis pointed out that this word serve is used nine times in Daniel, and it is always used in a context of paying reverence to a deity. And so quite literally, when the Son of Man arrives in the Ancient of Days gives him his kingdom, which includes all these nations, tribes, and languages, they are commanded to pay. They're going to serve him. They're going to pay reverence to him as God. And so the Son of Man um, is fully God as well. And finally, let me show you another thing. In Revelation 1, 14, there's a description of Jesus. And he is described with the very same uh, phraseology as the Ancient of Days. Um, so I'll, I'll read it to you. And so Revelation is going back into Daniel 7's vision of the Ancient of Days, and it's taking the attributes of God the Father and applying it to God the Son and saying he shares the very same righteousness and wisdom that his Father has. And so this Son of Man is fully man and fully God. And so let's conclude with the good news according to Daniel. Um. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is tossed into a pit. And this pit imagery, right, Fudd pointed this out in Daniel 6, this pit imagery uh, is very similar to death. It's used throughout Scripture for death, right, the pit. And uh, more so, it literally says that they roll over a stone and then they put a seal on it. Same thing happens when Jesus is crucified. He's thrown into the pit of death. 
and then he's put into a tomb. They roll a stone over it, and then Pilate seals it, right? And so we already have Daniel kind of figuring the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and then the stone's rolled away, and Daniel's still alive. God had spared him and had stopped the mouths of the lions. And in the same way, Jesus didn't stay dead, but instead rose back to life, and the stone was rolled away in resurrection. And so in Daniel 6, we have the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus typified in Daniel, but it doesn't stop. In Daniel chapter 7, we have the ascension and the second coming of Jesus put before us, that he will judge all the earth. And so in Daniel, this is what he taught of Jesus, and this is what we teach of Jesus. Jesus was crucified for our sins and was resurrected back to the de- from the dead on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of God where he sits even now, receiving the kingdom of God, and one day he will come again and judge in the same wisdom and righteousness of the Ancient of Days. And so in light of all this, I would ask us all, believe upon Christ, trust in the Son of Man, and worship God. He is the candle that shall not be stuffed out. He is the true candle that really, throughout his eternal life, says, only God is great, and I am God. Let's pray. Father, um, enable us to worship you in song um, today. I pray that this just vision of the Ancient of Days and of the Son of God, the Son of Man, would just uh, fill us with right thinking, right feelings, devotion, and worship for your name. And that it would come out through our singing, our conversations with one another, our praying, our giving, all these things, Lord. We pray that you would be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen.